Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been looking at Shakespeare's so-called problem comedy, Measure for Measure, and we have reached the point, the center of Act Three, the dead center with pun fully intentional, that marks what is, I think, possibly the darkest turning point in all of Shakespearean comedy. Right before the turning point, it has hit bottom. Claudio, condemned to death for a minor offense of getting his fiancée pregnant before the official ceremony, is accosted by his sister, Isabella, who is wearing the habit of a nun because she is on the verge of taking vows, but has had to plead before the corrupt judge, Angelo, for her brother's life. Angelo makes her an extortionist deal. You sleep with me and your brother lives. She says no to him, goes to the prison where Claudio is being held for execution for this minor offense, announces to him that she has refused this offer, and after initial bravado, Claudio's nerve breaks, and the sheer terror of death takes him over, and he begs his sister to go through with it to save his life. Claudio thereby proves himself not a conventional hero who, of course, would choose death before his sister's dishonor. That's one reason this is called a problem comedy, that the reaction is human all too human, rather than according to what stereotyped convention might dictate. Isabella, in her turn, when he begs, turns upon her brother with a fury, a self-righteous fury, calling him basically a pimp. You would pimp your own sister to save your life. I'm not sure you're even really my brother, and I will pray a thousand prayers for thy death. Thereby, proving that her vocation as a nun is indeed a false one. If she were a true Christian, if she were even being a decent human being at this point, she would have had some compassion for her brother, even in the act of turning down his begging for his life she might well have said, I'm sorry, my brother. I know that must be a terrible thing to go to your death like this. Nonetheless, I simply cannot do it. It would be wrong for me to do that, but I do feel for you. And however awkward, to put it mildly, that might have been, a little feeling for her brother in a terrible moment would have been 
more than just Christian, it would have just been common human decency, as I say. And to say I'll say, pray a thousand prayers for the death is about as non-Christian, even anti-Christian, as it could get. It is not Christian love. It is not agape. It is hate at that moment. It is sheer raw hatred. And that means that something is up psychologically with Isabella. Why should it provoke this extreme reaction? And we may infer many things. We do not get a clear look inside her head at any point in the play. Therefore, we have to guess from the outside. One, as I suggested last time, is that Isabella really cannot face life because life, unlike the view, the black and white view of religion that she seems to have, life is full of instances where moral choices are anything but purely black and white, and she has just collided with one great big one, and she cannot stand it. She soon after, before the ending of this scene, cries out, what a merit were it in death to take this poor maid from the world. I feel like dying. I would rather die than continue to live in a world like this that is so morally compromised that where there is no pure ideal. And that is what she feels she needs. She needs a pure ideal, and it has to be exemplified by projection on a male figure. She makes several references in her speeches at this point to an idealized father, and her brother Claudio is a stand-in for that idealized father, and so originally was Angelo as an officer, an authority, a judge, the representative of the law, the patriarchal law. And Isabella is invested in the idea of a pure, uncorrupted ideal represented by the law, represented by an infallible brother who will never get cold feet at any point. And she cannot deal with it. She is utterly demoralized. And given that this is a play, eventually, anyhow, about forgiveness and human frailty, I would suggest that at this moment, when Isabella looks her absolute worst, we try to reserve judgment until we see where this all goes. But there is no doubt that right at the moment, Claudio is not looking very heroic, though we can understand it. Still, not to minimize that he is willing basically to sacrifice his sister to a twisted rapist in order to save his hide, he's not looking so great either. Let's not let Isabella take all the blame. But Isabella is not looking too good either with her utter lack of any type of just plain fellow feeling, let alone Christian love. It hits rock bottom, to which we can add the twisted, tormented, rapist or would-be rapist Angelo. And we're 
really counting up members of the cast who are in a very bad way at this point. At this point, as Northrop Fry points out when he speaks about measure for measure, there is a clearly marked parapetia, Aristotle's word in the poetics for the turning point. Aristotle is t speaking of tragedy and the tragic turning point, the point at which the action bends the arc around to tragedy. The tragic hero rises, reaches an apex, and then there is the twist, the parapetia, the turning point, that twists the action downward to catastrophe. Aristotle's supposed treatment of comedy has been lost, but we may infer that the same thing would be true of the structure of comedy, only in reverse. The comic action plunges downward to hit rock bottom at a low point, and just when it's darkest before the dawn, twists around in a way that differs from the tragic peripatia, because the tragic peripatia seems inevitable. In fact, sometimes high-sounding speeches about fate and destiny are, are factored into the speeches of tr some tragedies. At any rate, there is a feeling of horrible inevitability about the tragic turn. The turn upward towards the happy ending in comedy is exactly the opposite. It is almost always marked by some sort of implausibility or too-good-to-be-true feeling about it. And that is most certainly the case in Measure for Measure. Shakespeare marks this, as Fried points out, exactly by a switch from verse to prose all of a sudden. This scene, Act 3, Scene 1, falls in two halves, and the second half switches to prose, and we get a stage direction that says, the Duke comes forward. And the Duke comes forward with a trick out of his back pocket. The Duke whips another woman, a whole new cast member that we have not heard of before in half a play, figuratively out of his back pocket, let me tell you about Mariana. And it's a very interesting story that all of a sudden, Shakespeare holding out on this, all of a sudden tells us about Mariana and Angelo. And it just so happens that this woman Mariana, like Isabella, had a brother who, who did die. Mariana's brother, Frederick, was lost at sea. And we may be, may be reminded at some points here of Twelfth Night as well with Viola. Frederick lost at sea, and unfortunately, the dowry that was supposed to go with Mariana in marriage went down in the drink with him. And we find that Angelo had been contracted to marry Mariana. We were not told this before. In other words, his situation was quite parallel to that of Claudio and Julieta. But 
Unlike Claudio and Giulietta, Angela, when he learned that the money had disappeared, backed out of his contractual agreement and covered his butt with rumors, spreading vicious rumors, that the reason he had done so because it was because he found that Mariana was dishonorable, which was, it would be a terrible thing on social media today, but even more terrible in a society in which a woman's reputation was as crucial as it was in that period of time. So this was a horrible thing for him to do long before he was put into the position of authority by the Duke. And since it's the Duke telling us all of this, the Duke knew all of that before he put Angelo in charge, which means as if we needed proof, which means that the Duke is putting Angelo in a position of a test or has already done so, and Angelo has already failed the test rather spectacularly. We eventually are going to have to confront the question, what does the Duke think he is doing and by what right does he puppeteer and manipulate people? But nevertheless, it's pretty clear that that is what is going on here. Well, what is Mariana's reaction to her betrayal by Angelo, Mariana wants him more than ever. And that too will eventually have to be confronted in our discussion because we have pop psych words like codependent that give us a psychology of abused women who side with and try to stay with their abusers. And what is the Duke doing when he's clearly maneuvering to jockey Angelo back to Mariana and away from Isabella? Why would you do that given what you know about Angelo twice over? We have many more questions than we have answers. And Time for, finally, a little comic relief in Act 3, Scene 2, after that almost intolerable first scene. We return to the lower order humor, the officer of the law, Elbow, who, good fork Elbow, he's finally caught a fish. He's finally arrested Pompey, and on good evidence this time. Uh, and I'm sure he's very happy about this. Pompey is not happy about this. He is arrested, and he is not going to be condemned to death the way poor Claudio is. Obviously, there is a parallel going on here. He is not going to be condemned to death, but nevertheless, he is going to be condemned to uh, certain penal servitude, literal penal servitude. He's going to have to serve the hangman as his penance in the prison system. But first, there is a scene with Lucio. Pompey is arrested, and Lucio refuses to go his bail. 
And we ask the question of why, because more parallelism, Lucio tr did try, in his tricksterish way, to help out Claudio at the beginning of the play in a parallel plight of being arrested. He at least went and got Isabella out of the convent and acted as a cheerleader and tried to jumpstart her efforts to plead for her brother's life before Angelo. But here, he simply turns Pompey down to his face. He will not go bail. Why? Line 74, it is not the where. It is not the fashion, in other words. And what is not the fashion? To go bail for a pimp, basically. What it amounts to is that he refuses, out of reasons of social class, Claudio is respectable class, upper class, and therefore it's cool to help him out. It's not cool to help out a pimp, even if you've been hanging around with him. So you're on your own, dude. But that leads to a hilarious scene between Lucio and the Duke. Pompey is rightly accused and rightly apprehended, but Lucio, who runs off at the mouth at all times, the humor of Lucio is that he just cannot keep his mouth shut, even though at the moment it would be very prudent to do so. And he has to keep running on and gets on to, instead of Pompey, he switches to, oh, that duke of ours. And of course, the friar is the duke in disguise, so we get the humor of Lucio bad-mouthing the duke for practically an entire page to the duke's face, and the duke struggling to contain himself and not blow his cover and give it away. And... Lucio starts by talking about Angelo as a contrast. Uh, Angelo, oh, it's certain that when he makes water, his urine is congealed ice. That I know to be true. But he goes on to contrast this supposedly cold, upright Angelo with the Duke. Oh, would the Duke that is absent have done this? Ere he would have hanged a man for getting a hundred bastards, he would have paid for the nursing of a thousand. He had some feeling of the sport. He knew the service, and that instructed him to mercy. The duke would never have done this. He'd have let everybody off because he had some feeling for the sport. He was a lustful old fellow himself, I can tell you. The duke trying to control himself, says in an even tone of voice, I never heard the absent duke much detected for women. He was not inclined that way. Oh, sir, you are deceived. <laughs> the duke dryly says, tis not possible. <laughs> nope. But, oh, Lucio, again, will not shut up. He just keeps getting himself in further. 
Uh, oh, your beggar of 50, his use was to put a ducat in her clack dish. And we know what that metaphor means. And the duke had crotchets in him. He would be drunk too, let me inform you. You do him wrong, surely, the duke says. A shy fellow was the duke, and I know the cause of his withdrawing. He had a lot to withdraw from, is what Lucio is saying. And uh, the duke leaves it go for the moment, but does say at the end of it that if ever the duke return, as our prayers are he may, let me desire you to make your answer before him. I pray you your name. Sir, my name is Lucio, well known to the duke. He shall know you better, sir, if I may live to report you and so forth, and Lucio still will not draw back from this. Sparrows must not build in his house eaves because they are lecherous, says uh, Lucio about Angelo. The duke would ha yet would have dark deeds darkly answered. He would never bring them to light. Would he would re were returned? And then he just adds insult to injury. The Duke, I say to thee again, would eat mutton on Fridays. He's now past it yet. The final insult, of course, he's now over the hill and he can't do all that stuff. But boy, in his day, he was a fun-loving guy. And we know what's going to come out of this. We find very quickly before the end of that scene and bringing us to act four we find the end of this scene that mistress overdone has been brought in also along with pompey and mistress overdone informs the provost and aeschylus that Mistress Cape Keepdown was with child by Lucio in the Duke's time. He promised her marriage. His child is a year and a quarter old. I have kept it myself and see how he goes about to abuse me. More parallels. Another guy has gotten another girl pregnant and this time simply abandoned. One of the prostitutes, Cape Keep down is clearly one of Mistress Overdone's prostitutes. He promised her marriage, but the child's a year and a quarter old, and Lucio has simply ignored it all. Okay, but Mistress Overdone is gone away to prison. And finally, the Duke asks, or Aeschylus asks the Duke, what news abroad in the world? And the Duke, still dressed as the friar, not revealed as the Duke, nonetheless says, to end Act 4, What news abroad in the world? None, but there is so great a fever on goodness that the disillusion of it must cure it. And again, there's a kind of indirection to the Duke. He's seeming to agree with the dark view of human nature that has been expressed elsewhere, 
in the play, sometimes cynically by people like Lucio and Pompey, that human nature is simply corrupt and there's nothing you can do about it. You can try to crack down on it, but one, it will fail, and two, the judges themselves are corrupt. There's no hope. The dissolution of the world is the only thing we can hope for. This sort of looking for a final apocalypse, a kind of nihilistic despair. We know that the Duke can't really hold that opinion. He's yet again throwing out something as a signal of a possible position that he is not going to hold because all this puppeteering of his, whether he has a right to be doing it or not, and whether he's half crazy or not to be doing it, is clearly not a giving up and waiting for the end of the world. It's clearly an attempt to put things to rights, and we have two more acts to see how this is going to go. Uh, and uh, the Duke ends his speech by asking Aeschylus, wise, compassionate, old Aeschylus, the one truly good person, perhaps, in this play. Just as we are beginning to share some of the cynicism and despair that any example of human nature is left to feel ideal about, we remember that there is Aeschylus, and Aeschylus never compromises himself in the course of the play. And in fact, also, part of his goodness is his acceptance of the frailty of human nature and his compassion for it rather than self-righteous judgment about it. And the Duke, disguised as the friar, asks Aeschylus, I pray you, sir, of what disposition was the duke? In other words, never mind the slanders of Lucio. What disposition did the duke really have, in your opinion? And Aeschylus gives an interesting answer, one that, above all other strifes, contended especially to know himself to know himself. Whether we agree in the end that that is a good description of the Duke, or whether we end up thinking, which is possible, that the Duke above all does not know himself and has deluded notions of grandeur, thinking that he can puppeteer people as if he were God, a, a theory that we will have to return to eventually. Aeschylus, who is the wisest person in the play by a good margin, gives a much better picture in one line, one that above all other strifes contended especially to know himself. This play is saying that though that may not be a matter of total despair of human nature, nevertheless, all human beings have what Jung called a shadow an unacknowledged dark side. And the first way to be a moral human being is to confront the fact that you have a shadow, to learn what's in it, 
and to start becoming aware and to beware of what that shadow could do if it gets out of control, which, if you are unconscious of it, is exactly what will happen. Well, we turn to Act 4 and the beginning of the turnaround, which involves Mariana, the mysterious Mariana. And Mariana is mysterious, yet another way in which this play is unusual, provocative, and yet confusing is, okay, first Mariana suddenly appears in the play, as if by magic almost, but where has she been? And she's been in a very strange place. She has been sequestered in the moated grange. What in the world is that? Well, the phrase itself is, in a sense, self-explanatory. She is in a sort of country house or rural setting, a grange, and it has a moat around it. But what's with that? Why have her there instead of at a hotel or something? She's been sequestered away because of her name being blackened and so forth. That's the logical explanation, but what's with the moated grange? And it's simply left at that and not explained in a forthright way, but we grab what we can from the imagery. And Act 4 opens, scene 1, with a boy singing to Mariana. The boy sings, oh, take, oh, take those lips away that so sweetly were forsworn. And those eyes, the break of day, lights that do mislead the morn. But my kisses bring again, bring again, seals of love, but sealed in vain, sealed in vain. Famous luminous line about those eyes that are lights that do mislead the morn. But it's about forsworn love, which is, of course, Mariana's fate. And yet it's also about Mariana's continued desire. My kisses bring again, bring again, though sealed in vain. Mariana is physically isolated in this moated grange, and with an expanded perspective on Shakespearean comedy, we realized that this is a sort of shrunken version of what Northrop Fry calls the green world in Shakespearean comedy. The mysterious other place, often a wood or forest, in which the characters leave the court or civilization, go out into, and mysterious things happen out there that bring about the happy ending eventually when there is a return from it. This is a small-time version of it, you might say, but nevertheless the imagery probably counts as such. It is moted to indicate 
her isolation. And the isolation is physical, but it's also an isolation of consciousness. She is in an isolated state of mind. The play does not go into such detail about that as a famous poem by Tennyson called Mariana does in a half dozen evocative stanzas based simply on the little shred of information that Shakespeare gives about Mariana in the moated grange. What is going on in this woman's mind isolated out there? And Tennyson expands it to one of his greatest poems, which is a dramatic monologue of Mariana while she is out there waiting. And what it does is lyrically intensify her feelings of isolation out there to the point of the near suicidal. Let me, in fact, read to you one stanza of Tennyson's Mariana to give you the idea of the state of mind. Mariana is in a physical place, but she's really in a state of mind that obviously has to be escaped from if the play is to be a comedy. This is Tennyson. All day within the dreamy house, the doors upon their hinges creaked. The blue fly sung in the pane, the mouse behind the mouldering wainscot shrieked. Or from the crevice peered about, old faces glimmered through the doors, old footsteps trod the upper floors, old voices called her from without. She only said, my life is dreary, he cometh not, she said. She said, I am a weary, a weary, I would that I were dead. Tennyson is very good at portraying the isolation of abandoned, near-death or in-actual-death women, the Lady of Shalott and so forth. And she is caught in what is really a haunted house, the haunted house haunted by old faces, old footsteps, old voices. And the wonderful line, the blue fly sung in the pain, somewhere or other that I can't remember. T.S. Eliot remarks on, okay, that's not grammatical, should have said sang, but Tennyson's ear, his poetic instinct was infallible. The blue fly sung in the pain. And each of the multiple stanzas ends with that same refrain, I am a weary, a weary, I would that I were dead. That goes considerably beyond anything that's in the play itself, but the fact that it is so evocative indicates that Tennyson is sensitive to something that, in fact, is in the play, simply not as overtly. And is it... Mariana has to be rescued from that. 
she's going to be rescued from that. We can see the plot shaping up and thrown back in the direction of Angelo again, and we wonder if the cure is going to be worse than the disease in that case. Is Mariana going to get no better than a choice between half-suicidal isolation and this twisted would-be rapist? What is this play? How can this play possibly work itself into a happy ending? It will turn around, but without giving spoiler alerts, we're just going to have to see how that manages to happen, and this being a problem comedy, whether we do deem it a happy ending or what we do deem it to be. We will go on next time. Mm -hmm.